Our text today is from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, as we continue in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. So hear the words of your Savior. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go by in it. But because the narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you for your spirit now to open our ears and open our hearts and to cause us to receive with joy and with obedience the word which you've spoken. We pray that you would deliver us from every distracting thought. We pray that you would deliver us from er every error and lead us into truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. How many times have you been at a place with large crowds where you're queued up in line at a ball game, at a concert, at a busy airport, and you get to the front of the line that you're waiting in after waiting a long time, and you find out that you've been standing this whole time in the wrong line. This is not your line. This is the line for people who have bags to check, and you don't have bags to check, or this is the line for people who need tickets, but you, you already have your tickets, and your line is over there, and it's not actually a line at all. You just walk right in, and here you've been over here standing in line. What leads people to gravitate to long lines? It seems like every time I go to a ball game, there are long lines to get in, and there's this one ticket taker there all by themselves looking around like, come over here, I'll take your ticket. And nobody's over there because they think there's something wrong with that line. Nobody's there. And it's this self-perpetuating myth that something's wrong with that line. Uh, and you go over there, and you walk, and you go through, and then you turn around, and like 12 people are following you to get into that, that short, short way to go. Why do we gravitate to the long line? Is it because we have this assumption that everyone must know what they're doing? Uh, everybody knows something we don't know. This must be the way to go. Well, I made that mistake enough times, and I've wasted enough time standing in the wrong line, that now I'm suspicious of long lines, and I think the opposite. If there's a way that a lot of people are going, that's the way I don't want to go. I just assume that that's the wrong way. There have been many, many instances where we've just saved ourselves a lot of time by passing the long line, which turns out to be unnecessary, or the wrong line to be in, in the first place, and go find another way. My assumptions are not always perfect. I'm not batting a thousand on that. Sometimes we have to go back and stand in the long line because that is actually where we need to be. But as long as you can laugh at yourself and as long as you can admit when you're wrong, it seems best to do, in most situations, it's best to do what the crowd isn't doing. Just do your own thing. It is fascinating to observe crowds and the behavior of humans when they function as a group. There have been studies on the, on the movement and the conduct of large masses of humanity and how there really is such a thing as herd mentality. It takes just 5% of people in a crowd or a mob, just 5% of the people can influence a whole group to respond or to act a certain way. If you think of a group of 1,000 people, it only takes 50 to do something and lead the entire group. This collective sense of identity takes over when you're in a large crowd. And it can have some pretty frightening and strange repercussions um, when, when in, in, in the way that people act. People are easily influenced in large crowds, easily influenced toward panic or rage or euphoria. Why is it that people laugh at comedies in a movie theater? They all laugh together, and you watch the same movie at home by yourself, and you don't laugh out loud. 
You might breathe a little harder through your nose. You might go, hmm. But you don't laugh out loud the way you would in a group. It's because in groups, we have a significant impact on each other. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus references this reality with warnings that in his day, in, in Jerusalem and in Judea, the pack, the herd, the mob is headed for destruction. He calls his people out and to come be differentiated from the pack, be separated even from those who are assumed to be the best and most religious of their day, which are the scribes and the Pharisees, the elite faith leaders of their time, are leading people headlong into compromise and conflict with Rome that they're not going to survive. They're not going to last through this. Jerusalem is going to be a smoking crater within decades. The way of the crowd, Jesus says, is the way of destruction. So he, he issues an invitation. He says, come with me. Join me in the way that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's the overriding message of the Sermon on the Mount. He lays out the character of the new kingdom that he is forming and details how the citizens of his kingdom act and think and live, contrasting the prevailing sentiments of the mob. And Jesus promises that if you follow him, his is the path to life and blessing. If you follow Jesus, that is the way to please his father in heaven. So he sets before them two ways, two choices, two gates, and only, and only two paths. There is a way that leads to destruction, and there is a way that leads to life. Now, if you lived in the first century, you might hear this, and you protest, there are not only two ways. There are many ways, many, many, many ways to choose from. Just in Judaism alone, you could go the way of the legalistic conservative Pharisees, or the theologically liberal Sadducees, or you could go with the radical separatist Essenes, or you could join the violent terrorist Zealots, and, and those are just some of the factions within Judaism. Outside of that, uh, you could follow one of the schools of the Greek philosophers, or you could hook up and join one of the temples of any one of the Greek gods. There are so many of the Greek gods, and they all have their priests, and they all have their priestesses. Or if you don't want to do that, you can explore the Egyptian gods or the Babylonian gods, or you could pursue the Persian religion. Isn't Jesus oversimplifying things to say there are only two options? There are only two ways? There are only two gates? Seems like there are a lot of gates. Seems like there's a lot of ways. And after all, don't they all kind of lead to the same place? That's the assumption in someone who would ask that question. But the answer is no, they don't all lead to the same place. Jesus is making clear there are and always have been two ways of life and faith and religious practice. One is the broad way, the broad way of man's reliance on himself, of doing his own thing, going his own way, leaning on his own understanding, and in his relationship to God or to the gods, as it were, his relationship is based on his attempts to earn his way into fellowship with the deity, working out his deliverance through his own righteousness, through works and sacrifices and rituals and other practices. 
because, you see, man can work his way into fellowship with God. He can merit his relationship with God because man, after all, isn't really that bad off to begin with. Sins, what are you talking about? Sins, you mean, you know, our whoopsies, our uh-ohs, our mistakes, uh, our, our sins are not that really big of a deal, and they're easily overlooked, and they're easily overcome if you just balance them out with all of your so-called good deeds. That's one way. That is the wide way. That's the wide way that Jesus describes. And all the groups that I just listed, all the groups of the ancient world that I just ran through, they all walk that gate, a gate that is identified by moralistic, self-righteous religion, works-based religion. That's the wide way. And that's also, that also happens to be the, the way to destruction. To trust in yourself that you are righteous on your own, that's the wide way. The other way is the way that acknowledges with great humility that we have a terminal sin problem. Apart from God's work for us on our behalf, apart from the triune God providing a way for us that he has described, there's only death. Apart from God's grace, we have nothing. We are nothing. We can do nothing. There is no amount of human effort that is ever going to pay for or cover our sin. No way that we can merit God's favor. What is required of us is trust, a response of faith to his work for us, a rest in his work on our behalf, which responds in obedience. It responds in faithfulness. Out of love and gratitude for the work he has done for us, we respond with, with righteousness, but we rely first on his work for us. We depend on and we rest in his work for us, not our work for him. We cannot cleanse ourselves. We must be cleansed by him. That is the way leading to life. To put it simply, that is trust in Christ trust in him. Now, those are the two ways that Jesus lays before us. And perhaps, again, you think this is oversimplifying it even today. How can you narrow all of the options in the world down to two ways? Today, we have lots of different paths to discover and explore and study. There are many worldviews and many philosophies, many different religions that all deserve a degree of inquiry. They all deserve a level of respect. Lots of doors, lots of gates. But that's just not the case. Don't be confused or intimidated by all the choices and thinking, oh, there's so many choices, so many ways, so many gates. The options are now and have always been binary. There are only two ways, only two ways, and only one of them leads to life. Moses set two ways before Israel. Moses in Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Only two ways. Joshua gave Israel a binary choice. It's either the gods of the nations or it's Yahweh. Joshua says, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Jeremiah 21, we hear, 
and read. Thus says Yahweh, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And Elijah in 1 Kings 18, Elijah comes to all the people and he says, how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. There are now and have always been just two ways. The Bible doesn't spread out a buffet of options where you can choose your own adventure. You can put together, you can cobble together your own Frankenstein religion from all kinds of parts and ideas. You can't work out your own path to eternal life. And the message of the Christian faith has never been, hey, you know what? We're all kind of the same. We're all headed the same way. And so, you know, just kind of be nice. And whatever that means to you, do that and we'll all end up in the same place. No, no, that's a lie. We aren't all working toward the same thing. It's Jesus or nothing. Those are the choices. What do you want? Jesus or death, Jesus or destruction. The Lord Jesus presents it himself this way with this dramatic image in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Here you are walking along and you're confronted with two gates. There is one gate which is wide and broad and a great mass of humanity is flowing through that gate. On the other side is a narrow gate which only admits one person at a time and not many people are choosing that line. There is the popular way and the unpopular way and Jesus is calling you. Which way are you gonna go? Which, which path are you gonna follow? What gate are you gonna walk through? Let's consider that popular gate for just a moment. Jesus says it's broad and it's wide. It's spacious and it's roomy and it's easy and the herd of humanity is going that way. Nobody's gonna think you're abnormal. Nobody's gonna think you're weird for going the wide way. It's the choice that doesn't ask anything from you at first. It's simple to just drift through that gate passively and go with the flow of the mass of humanity. I'm sure you've walked in a, either an amusement park or a fair or some crowd where you're, you're just in this mass of people and it's really, you just gotta kinda walk and stay up with the herd and stay with the crowd. It's, it's easy to just go wherever the crowd is going. There's plenty of room for you to just, to just to walk along, just to be carried along in the tide of the crowd that's going through the wide gate. There's plenty of room in the wide gate for a great diversity of opinion, a great laxity of behavior. This is the road of permissiveness. This is the road of great tolerance. There are no curbs, there are no guardrails, no boundaries of thought or word or action. Now, there are some superficial boundaries that are always changing and nobody can ever decide what the rules actually are, which means there aren't really any rules because they're not based on anything. They're not based on any objective truth. You just follow your own path through the gate. You just follow your heart in all of its fallenness. All of your natural compulsions are present and celebrated. Whatever you want, Whatever you desire, it's okay. If you want to be superficial, it's okay. Want to be self-interested and self-absorbed and self-promoting, you don't need to exercise self-control in the wide gate. You don't need to do anything that is learned or cultivated or practiced. It is, a, it is the zero effort path 
The path is wide enough that you don't need to leave anything behind. You can bring in everything with you. Your sin, your false beliefs, your, your false philosophies, your habits, your compulsions, all of it comes with you. Whatever idea you have about God, you bring it with you in the wide gate. If you believe that God is like a senile, naive, doting grandfather, God is this, this kindly old man who would never judge you, he would never hate sin, he would never punish the guilty. If that's your theology, there's room for you in the wide gate. If you believe in reincarnation or you want to practice ancestor worship or, or if you just want to think when we die, we just cease to exist. So get in all the fun you can before we die. There's room for you, plenty of room for you in the wide gate. No one in the wide gate is going to correct you or contradict you or counter you or hold you accountable. Just go with the flow. Just drift on through the wide gate. Now let's look at the narrow gate. Jesus says the narrow gate is difficult. It has very clear boundaries. Its narrowness is not defined by whatever you want to think or believe or whatever your heart wants. Its narrowness, its walls are defined by what God has revealed in the scriptures to be true and good. And so its limits are not based on how we feel. Its limits are based on what is true. And the passage is so narrow that we're going to have to leave some things behind to get through it. We have to leave behind our worldly attitudes. What I mean by worldly attitudes is that belief structure that we have inherited from a system that runs as if Jesus isn't king. There's an entire set of institutions, there's an entire complex of human networked uh, relationships, institutions in the world that operate as if Jesus isn't king. They operate as if Jesus is irrelevant. And, and we have inherited ideas, all kinds of presuppositions, all kinds of baseline assumptions from that world. But to walk through this gate, you have to make a break with that. You have to correct those things and separate yourself from the crowd that parrots worldly mantras. Because you're going this other way. You're not going that way. You can't take that crowd with you through the narrow gate. You also have to leave behind the lusts of the flesh if you're going to go through the narrow gate. Those won't fit. You have to leave behind the things that your sin nature craves. Put off the old man. There's not room for him in the narrow gate, only the new creation. So you leave behind your pride and everything in you that tries to stand up and rebel against the total lordship of Jesus over you. You have to give up everything that is in rebellion to Christ. Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Paul says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. Every haughty, arrogant, self-confident assertion of our own self-reliance, our own independence, everything that is prideful and arrogant stays outside. And with that, you may have to leave some friends and companions behind. You may have to leave some family behind who aren't going to come with you because it's so narrow. You're going to have to come through empty-handed. Well, what is this narrow gate? What is this way? This way through the narrow gate is not just anything that makes you weird or different. You know, it's, it's not anything you come up with that's complicated or different and you think, oh, well, well this makes me different enough. I must, I must be on the narrow way. You know, I, I wear my pants on my head and, I, you know, whatever. I 
I create my own language, and so, I mean, I must be reformed because I'm so weird and I'm so different. That's not, you, we, don't just, we don't just make it up. The shape of this gate is already defined for us. You don't get to make it up. And this gate is not a what, this gate is a who. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. You wanna know what the gate looks like? You wanna know what the door is? Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In John 14, nine, Thomas is, is asking Jesus, you're talking about this way. How are, we, how are we supposed to find this way? Where is this way? And how does Jesus respond? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4.12, the apostles say, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. In 1 John 5.12, the apostle John says, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. It cannot be any more clear. The Lord Jesus Christ is the exclusive narrow way to life and to fellowship with God. The gate is Jesus himself. The path is cross-shaped. There is no other way. There is no other name. There's no other truth. There's no other life. That make, it may make you feel nervous to say that out loud around certain people. You, you, you may not want to say that too loudly around the wrong person because you think, well, that's so narrow. That's so limited. If I say that, then I have to say all this other stuff is out of accord, all this other stuff's out of line. All of this stuff is not the way to life. It is narrow, it is limited, that's the way truth works. All truth is narrow. To say a thing is true is to say that everything that disagrees with that, everything that contradicts that, is not true. If I say five plus five equals 10, that means it does not equal, cannot equal 15. It doesn't equal 20 or anything else you wanna put in there. Truth is narrow and exclusive. And so we can say with a straight face, without, without, without varying, we can say it's Jesus or nothing. It's Jesus or death. It's Jesus or destruction. There is the way of Jesus and there is the way of everything else. And the way of everything else is the way of destruction. Now, what does Jesus mean though when he says about this narrow gate, he says, there are few who find it. Let me read verse 14 again. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it. Does this mean that the number of people in human history who choose destruction is going to far outweigh the number of people who enter the narrow way and find life? Well, if that's what Jesus is saying, that doesn't sound compatible with some other things we get in the scriptures, like the vision we get in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, where we see around God's throne a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, all tribes, all peoples, all tongues, standing before the Lamb of God. A great multitude. God made covenant promises to Abraham that his faithful descendants would far outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand of the seashore. And um, Galatians 3.29 says that promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled in us. We, we 
those who trust Christ are the innumerable children of Abraham. So this must not be that, that Jesus is conceding defeat here in the Sermon on the Mount and saying, you know, I would, I would absolutely love to deliver an astronomically large group of people throughout history. I would love to save them, but the reality is, uh, just to be real honest, it's just gonna be a trickle. It's just gonna be a handful, just a couple of people. It's not, when we get to, to, to heaven and eternity, it's not even gonna be enough to make a basketball team. It's just gonna be a few people. Well, if that's what he's saying, that would be inconsistent with other statements we get about the victory of the gospel, about the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. So what is Jesus saying? Well, we get a chance to get a little bit more clarity in Luke chapter 13. One of the disciples asked Jesus the very same question we're asking now, asking for more clarity. Lord, are you saying only a few are going to be saved? Luke chapter 13, I want to pick it up in verse 22. Jesus went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where you're from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. So first of all, Jesus does not contradict the promises made through the prophets or the promises to Abraham that there will be an innumerable company of humanity worshiping God for eternity. But he is saying in the short term, in the first century, judgment is coming on unfaithful Israel. And comparatively speaking, very few of them, very few of the first century Jews are going to make it, just a remnant. And in, in Luke, Jesus says, Abraham's going to sit down with me in my kingdom, and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets are going to be rejoicing with me in my kingdom. But many of you, first generation inhabitants of Judea, many of you are going to be on the outside looking in. And then after this judgment that's coming, after this reckoning, all the nations are going to start streaming in from all the corners of the world. He says that they'll come from the east and the west and from the north and the south. This is a, this is a great uh, mass of humanity. He says they're coming, they're coming, and they're going to sit down in the kingdom of God. And when that happens, the last to hear the gospel, the last to receive the promises of God, the Gentile nations, are going to be first. And you who are the first, you first heard the promises. You first heard God's word. You are going to be last because of the disbelief of this generation. So back in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the very same, we have the very same context. The immediate meaning of this is that Jesus has come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel to call them to repentance. This is an announcement to Israel. Come, bow to your Messiah and King. Be united to Christ. Enter through his gate and have life. You'll get to share in his kingdom. But it's also a threat. It's a threat to those who resist 
and refuse. He says, you're not going to live through what's coming. You're not going to receive the blessings of the kingdom. All the covenant blessings transfer through Christ. And so Jesus says to that generation, you have one of two ways. There's the wide, idolatrous way that everybody else is going, and there's the narrow, small way that a lot of you are going to miss. A lot of you are going to have a hard time finding this because you're so prideful. Uh, to go this narrow way, to go to the way that leads to life, you're going to have to listen to me, Jesus says. You're going to have to join me on the way to the cross. And just not a lot of first century Judeans are going to do that. And we see it. The church starts off really small, but then we start going to the Gentile nations, we, we explode and we grow. So we don't live in the same historical context. And over time in eternity, over time, we get the multitude that we see in Revelation. We get the innumerable host of saints that are more than the sand, more than the stars. Though, there are times in history where it does really seem like the stream of people going the narrow way, it feels like it's really down to a trickle. And what's always the same in every century is that everyone who enters into life goes through one door, one gate, one way, and that path is to be a disciple of Jesus. So how do you and I check, make sure we're entering that narrow door? As Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. So the psalmist prayed in Psalm 139, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I don't want the wicked way. I want the way that leads me to life. I want to know that I'm on the way that leads to life. So how, how can we know and how can we avoid falling prey to the foolishness of the herd that's heading into destruction? Well, first, we have to tell the two doors apart. We have to know the gates apart. Life is always setting before us the hard way and the easy way, the long way and the short way. Life is always offering these shortcuts to glory that don't they don't require sacrifice. They don't require hard work. We always are faced with the disciplined way and the undisciplined way, the thoughtful way and the unthoughtful way. Jesus says the narrow way is difficult. It asks something of us. There's no in-between door. Uh, these two gates have different levels of traffic in them. There's a small crowd and a large crowd. There's no in-between crowd. There are two destinations, life and destruction. There's no in-between destination. These two ways demand then a commitment. Say you're going one way or the other. Uh, folks, a lot of people they just don't like to be committed. They, they want to say, don't nail me down. Don't pin me down. Don't put me on a spot. Don't ask me for an answer. Maybe this, maybe that. The jury's still out. I don't know. Well, buddy, you're on the big way. You're on the wide way, if that's what you say. Oh, I don't want to be an extremist. I don't want to be a fanatic. I kind of want to, I want to play loose. I want to maintain the air of choice. No, you're on the wide way. Jesus says he, he, he won't allow us to take a middle way because there's not one. There's only one correct gate, and it's the one that looks like, and it's the one that sounds like Jesus. So then for us, finding and walking that narrow way in every sphere of life with Every decision and every motive and every goal of our life requires me and you to reorient ourselves to this world that denies that, that, that Jesus is even relevant, the world that denies that Jesus is king. It requires us to, to reorient ourselves to that world, to, 
to determine that we're not going to ride along with the mass of humanity, that we're going to be separated, and to have this significantly different orientation to the ways of the world. Now, just give me a, a few minutes, and I'll give you a couple thoughts on what this requires of us. One thing that it requires is to learn to exercise a healthy, holy incredulity, a default distrust of the claims of the world that stands in opposition to Jesus. Where, where we have this setting, it's like, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't trust that. I'm not going to listen to that. We aren't easily taken in. We're not easily duped. We're not easily scammed. We're not a good mark for false teachers and vain philosophers because we hold everything at arm's length that isn't Bible. If it's not Bible, I'm sorry. I'm not buying it. I'm not listening. I don't instantly adopt fads or trends or whatever the craze is. Paul warned the Galatians. He says, don't listen to a novel gospel. If anybody comes and preaches another gospel, he says, even if I come to you and preach another gospel, if an angel from heaven comes and preaches something new to you, don't believe them. Let them be accursed. We all know about the Bereans in the book of Acts who searched the scriptures, who didn't take everything at face value, but they studied it to be sure. Even the Lord Jesus in John chapter 2, there were certain people, he didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He kept them at arm's length. We, we aren't like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 who spend their time in nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. We're not, we're not enamored with novelty. We're not swept up into fads and new things. A healthy incredulity insulates us from that herd mentality that's always chasing some new thing, that believes and trusts all the worldly institutional authorities that hangs on their every word. We, you and I, we have this little buffer that says, you know what, I'm listening to you. I don't buy it. I'm listening. We'll wait and see. But I'm not investing in what you're selling me, especially if you benefit from lying to me especially if you've proven to be untrustworthy in the past, especially if you promote every wicked thing under the sun, uh, you don't have my trust. My default is to not believe you. That's my default. I may be wrong, and I'll confess it when I am, but I'm not going to trust, and I'm not going to follow the herd. That's the first thing, to have this incredulity, this, this disbelief in the claims of the world set in opposition to Christ. And the second reorientation to that world is to develop a real differentiation from the crowd, a, a disassociation where we are comfortable being in the minority. I know not everybody's comfortable being in the minority. It scares you a little bit to be in the minority. But to be comfortable in your own skin being the only one who's going this way, to be the only one doing what you're doing. And we have to develop this because so much social, I'm sorry, so much evil, so much evil is propagated through social pressure. People are afraid to take their kids out of government schools because of family pressure. Because Aunt Susie, who, who taught public school for 30 years and retired in the 80s, what's she going to think if we take the kids out of public school? Um, there's this social pressure, the family pressure. Women feel cornered into killing their unborn babies because of the stigma and the social pressure to have a certain kind of life that a baby would interrupt. Ungodly social pressure is real 
and it's destructive and it's satanic and you are, and your children are susceptible to the forces of social pressure unless by habit you exercise and strengthen the muscles of doing good things that no one else is doing, to do the hard things that, that nobody else is doing. So don't find comfort in a crowd just because it's a crowd. The crowd is almost never right. The crowd laughed at Noah and the ark. The majority of spies that were sent into the promised land led Israel to disbelieve in sin. The majority of Jerusalem shouted, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. That's the majority. That's the crowd. Insulate yourself from the crowd. You say, hold on, wait a minute. Look around here. Isn't this kind of a crowd? Am I in the wrong place? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm not with you because you're a crowd. I'm not with you because it's cool to be a Christian. I'm not with you because there's a lot of social equity to do what we do. That's not why I'm with you. I'm, I'm not with you because you're a crowd. I'm with you because you love Jesus. I'm with you because you trust Jesus. I'm with you because you sound like Jesus and you smell like him and you act like him. That's why I'm with you. I'm with you and I'm here with you because you trust Jesus. You stop trusting Jesus and we're not gonna be friends anymore. Not in the same way as we're friends right now. It's gonna change our relationship. You stop trusting in Jesus and we don't have anything in common. It's gonna be different. As long as you trust Jesus, I'm with you. Not because you're a crowd, but because you love him and you trust him. Proverbs 13 says, he who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. Do not seek approval from fools. Don't make decisions to make fools happy. I know nobody likes to be criticized. Nobody, everybody wants everyone to think well of us. We don't want to be hated. We don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to be accused of, of all kinds of false things. But at some point you start to realize, you know what, that just comes with the territory of being a Christian. That just comes with the territory. And you start being real concerned about what pagan people think of you. Don't even let family members pressure you into betraying what the Holy Spirit is convicting you to do. There are, there are points in the Gospels where Jesus' family tries to pull him off course. And what does he say? He says, look, they say, your mother and your brothers are all waiting for you. They're outside. They, they want to they wanna talk some sense into you. And what does Jesus say? He looks around at his disciples and he says, who, who is my family? This is my family. If you do the will of my father, you're my family. So that's the second thing. Disassociate yourself from the crowd. And one last way to stay in that narrow gate, that narrow way, is to commit yourself to keep doing the hard things. Jesus said the narrow way is difficult. What I love, love, love about you, what I love about this congregation is how you do hard things. You make the hard decisions. Many of you drive long distances because you want to worship here and not someplace else. You could just put your children on a bus and you could send them to go be indoctrinated by the state, but no, you make serious sacrifices to get them a Christian education. You make principled decisions about how you run your business and how you do your work and you don't cut corners. You do the hard things because you know the Christian life is difficult and it will continue to be difficult until we draw our last breath. So keep up the fight and don't go the easy way and continue to ask, well, is there anything else that I'm doing just because it's easy? Is there, is there something that I'm doing? Where, where am I going the wide way? Where am I just following 
the herd. If you look at these two gates, look at these two ways, the wide way starts off inviting. It starts off, it begins open and easy and effortless. But it's a dead end. It ends in destruction. It comes to an end in death. It starts off wide and it ends in nothing. The narrow gate starts off difficult, but it ends in life. The narrow gate empties out into glory. It feels like you're just squeezing through, but you get through and you join the great company of all the saints of all the ages. The wide way starts off easy, but it becomes difficult. The narrow way starts off difficult, but it becomes easier and more blessed and more glorious with every step. Jesus issues this invitation for you. Come, join my kingdom. Step away from the swirling, chaotic crowd that is headed for destruction. Consider my gate. Consider my way. Come through the door. Come to my Father through me. Put down everything that keeps you from walking this way and come to the way of life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the way and the truth and the life and the passage to fellowship with you that he has provided for us. And so we ask you to grant us your spirit that we might be more and more strengthened, more and more conformed to his image every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.